Well, thanks, uh, Jared and team, and the prayer team for uh, leading us in that time of uh, worship and song and uh, response as we move into our teaching time. Uh, now, I'll tell you another one of my travel stories. You guys are going to think I travel a lot based on the fact that every week over the last three weeks I've told you about somewhere exotic in the world that I've been. It's not usual. This is, this is going back many years now. Uh, but a long time ago, I was traveling in Rome and uh, was in, I decided to do some sightseeing and thought, you know, what do you do in Rome? Well, I'll go to the Sistine Chapel. And so I waited in the long, long lineup. And you make your way through this maze of rooms in the Vatican, paying no attention to the fact that there's millions and millions of dollars of artifacts that you're supposed to be looking at because you're just waiting for the main attraction to get into the Sistine Chapel. And then when you get in, you know, your first uh, response, my first response is, I want to lay down on the floor and just look up at the ceiling and look at Michelangelo's just breathtaking works that depict on the ceiling over 300 figures from biblical history. But the guards tell you you're not allowed to lay down on the floor, and they stand you up and move you on if you do that. So, you know, that's not really, it's frowned upon, frankly. Um, But uh, 5,000 square feet of frescoes just to take in uh, and observe. It's really, it's quite breathtaking. And as you begin to walk out of the room, though, One painting looms larger and larger and larger as you begin to exit. And this this painting actually was not part of the original commission that Michelangelo received for the Sistine Chapel. They did a callback in 1535, and he actually spent two years longer on this painting than on all of the paintings in the ceiling combined. And that painting is on the far wall, The Last Judgment. And it covers the entirety of the last wall. You get a sense of the scope of it. On the bottom right and bottom left, those are the exit doors that you go out. And so this scene is massive, and it's a deeply impressive piece of art that took more than seven years for him to finish. But... The question that I have for you, and you're going to have to go home and look up some of the the specific scenes uh, after today, but the question I have for you is, is it biblical? Which seems a little bit sacrilegious. You know, it's in the Sistine Chapel, painted by like none other than Michelangelo himself, commissioned by the Pope. But is it biblical? It's a question you might not have thought about, but looking more closely at the various image You see all kinds of weird things, like bodies shedding their skins. You see sort of uh, like demon-type characters with these little kind of mustaches and weird ears and eyes and like grotesquely deformed human beings being dragged off in different directions. Some people look like they've escaped from the set of a horror film with their makeup still on and intact. And we have to ask ourselves, it's a beautiful piece of art, but does it represent accurately what the Bible teaches about the last judgment? About heaven and about hell. Well, we've been in a teaching series here in the months of March and April called The Red Letters. 
And what we're trying to look at is things that Jesus said and ask, what if he really meant them? Uh, Because a lot of times people will take the words of Jesus and say, well, I think what Jesus was really trying to say was this or that. And what if Jesus meant and what did he mean when by he talked about things like heaven and hell? And perhaps none of the things that Jesus said are more jarring or more controversial or more important or more misunderstood than the topic of where do we go from here? Where do we go when we die? Jesus said a number of things about that. And I'm going to suggest to you today that to a large extent in our day and age, we have largely ignored what Jesus said about the afterlife in favor of cartoonish caricatures and weak platitudes. But I'm hopeful that today we can press beyond some of that and we can ask ourselves some of the implications and wrestle with uh, what it means because this topic touches each and every one of our lives, doesn't it? And I think part of the problem, particularly, is discussing uh, emotionally charged topics like heaven and hell, is that sometimes people, they fall into a couple of different traps. And a lot of times, what I see in this discussion is people get very philosophical and forget that we're talking about real life here. We're talking about our lives and people's lives. And so before we get into the topic, I want to just remind us of a few ground rules that we actually laid down when we were talking about uh, women in ministry leadership a long time ago here at Jericho. But uh, the ground rules for theological discussion and conversations are as follows. Firstly and most importantly, always, always, always engage in the study of the scriptures, in conversation with other people who are studying the scriptures in good faith with humility, with charity, and with the idea that when we study the scriptures, it's because we want to live out the things that we find there, not just get great ideas and philosophize and have wonderful blog posts all about them. They're lived convictions that we need to have, that they need to have traction in the real world. And we need to think of things when we study the scriptures in terms of what is the scripture saying to me? What are the implications for discipleship in my life and in my world? How might this play out in my life right now today? So in the interest of time today, it's a huge topic of conversation. And we're not going to focus so much on what Jesus says about heaven. We'll do that another time. But we're going to focus a little bit more on what Jesus says about judgment and about hell. And here it's important to ask ourselves again carefully, which Michelangelo, I'm going to argue, did not. What does the Bible actually say? But also importantly, what does the Bible not say about these topics? but yet we have generated large volumes of information about throughout church history. And also, it's important in conversations like this just to watch out for our cultural biases and our personal agendas or personal hobby horses or even personal experiences. Sometimes I talk with people. I do a lot of funerals in the community for people who are not connected with any uh, religious organization or institution in any way. And, And I talk to people... And people are really deeply um, want to use language around loved ones going to a better place. And you'll ask them about their loved one's life. And you see, does anything about their life indicate that this language of better place or any of that? Oh, no, no, not at all. 
Well, and we, it's, we want to be careful about using that you know, and subjecting our personal experiences and our cultural narratives to the biblical witness. So with some of that as our backdrop, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your smartphones to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And it'll come up on the side screens here for you. Jesus is preaching in this section his final sermon that is recorded. And he's come to the end of three parables that he tells. And all of the parables are about readiness and watchfulness and being found faithful. So we're going to jump in with the last one uh, that he tells in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says this, and it's almost all in red letters except for the verse headings. So... Uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus has all the angels with him. He will sit upon his glorious throne. All of the nations will be gathered in his presence. All the peoples will be gathered in his presence. He will separate the people as a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So this should be a good clue for us that literally... Uh, we're, we're in the realm of metaphor here that there's not literally sheep and goats, that these are people and that there's something that we would be indicating that and it'll be their deeds. He'll come to that in a minute. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing, I was sick and you cared for me, I was in prison and you visited, you, and you visited me. And these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and then visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will say to those on his left, Away with you, you cursed ones into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't feed me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So, the questions to ask ourselves is, what do we know from this passage, and where do we go from here with these topics? Again, in the interest of time and focus, we're going to emphasize what is it that Jesus says about judgment and particularly what can we learn about what Jesus says about hell. We'll have to save the other text for heaven for another time. But a few things that we uncover in this text, that Jesus is being clear around a few things. And one thing that he's being clear on is the fact that hell is real, that it's not fictional. Jesus uh, says that it, it's a place that he, that's been created, that was prepared or created for the devil and his followers, just as he was talking to his disciples and John and saying, I'm preparing a place for you. But here's our cultural challenge. That's about all Jesus says about hell. We've filled in the gaps 
and then some with large volumes of information. If you were to push me and ask me, well, where did we get these ideas about hell that are largely prevalent in our culture today? There's probably a number of streams of thought that these have come from. Uh, one is from sort of Neoplatonic thought and philosophy, and this kind of gave fusion in the Middle Ages to a ton of the art that if uh, you look about hell and the, the creative processes that were happening in the Middle Ages around art and literature. Uh, a lot of these ideas come to us from the Middle Ages, from uh, writings like Dante's Inferno. Most of our cultural perceptions or what we think of when we say the word hell actually probably are found in Dante's Inferno more than in the Bible. Uh, also, like John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, there's a lot about hell. that He, he gives these very vivid descriptions about hell. They have very little anchoring in the scriptural text. And then you come into the 1700s and this is stoked by revivalists' teaching and that continues on to the present day, especially in our generation in kind of the uh, 60s and 70s with uh, hellfire and brimstone preachers and then pop culture as well, uh, like Homer Simpson and all of these ideas we have about trading your soul to the devil and making deals with the devil, all of these types of things. And that's about as clear a picture in our minds as exists when it comes to hell and the afterlife. And the picture is enforced by the Sistine Chapel. It's enforced by everything from uh, like Far Side Comics is one of my favorite ones, uh, the Far Side Comics. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. <laughs> yes, we have these ideas about the afterlife, about a, you know, a people clad in red running around with pitchforks and stabbing people and, you know, the devil in commercial is selling everything from cheese to, you know, cars and all kinds of stuff. Uh, maybe you grew up and maybe you were, uh, experienced a type of preaching that was built around this type of architecture of hell, very strong and passionate arguments for hell to move people uh, to decisionism as opposed to discipleship and to you know, really try and scare people into uh, heaven uh, by telling them about how awful and horrible hell was. I can remember being at camp as a young person and I can remember them one night locking us all in the chapel and showing us a movie about hell and literally it scared the hell into me. I mean, I just thought, <laughs> this is horrible, you know, and I, I, just, I can still have images of that that kind of float in my brain when we talk about hell. And so our temptation when we talk about judgment can be very easily to fictionalize it or jeopardize these and just jettison it or think, well, that can't be real. That just seems absolutely, absolute lunacy to believe in that type of stuff. But Jesus never jettisons or minimizes hell. He speaks of it in a particular way, however. He doesn't use it to create a sense of fear-mongering, but to cause us, as in this passage in Matthew 25, to rightfully consider our choices and our actions. More on that later. 
So what do we do with hell then philosophically, theologically, and in every other way? Books are being published ferociously these days by various uh, evangelicals. Some want to make hell uh, more prominent. Some want to minimize or, or erase it altogether. Uh, but when Jesus talks about hell, Jesus talks about it in a context of warning. Because hell, the thing that Jesus wants to tell us about hell is that hell is bad. Hell is really, really bad. Not, to, not, in, a, not in a scareful, fear-mongering kind of way. In his book, uh, Dante's book, Inferno, he goes into great details about how bad hell is and how bad people are who are in hell. So there's levels of hell, how you get there, who's there with you in the different levels of hell, the signage in hell, what different things, you know, the signs above the doors to hell say, abandon all hope. And there's different signage on different levels to help you understand where you are in this. But whenever the biblical writers speak about hell, they always resort to metaphor an illusion, and it, they, they use phrases to try and uh, help us grapple with because it's just for the biblical writers, it's too horrible to put into words. And so 2 Peter chapter 2, just it's hell, hell is like, and it's like Peter's searching for words, like, it's like just like gloomy pits of darkness. Like, I don't know, I can't do any better than that when I try and describe it. Or uh, common phrases in the New Testament include focusing on a particular aspect of the experience of hell, how a person uh, would experience hell, not the specifics about the environment. So the, the Bible will say things like, like weeping, like a person that would, just, that would experience, their, their experience would be so characterized by just absolute, this gnashing of teeth, like just anguish and and they would just feel so i don't know they would just be it would be horrid it'd just be like it'd be like just like torment it would be and then the biblical writers are just they're trying to to stab at how bad hell is they're not trying to paint an artistic description of it for us and you see where we've made the mistakes then we've taken some of these things and and given them very literal uh, artistic license and we built it into something maybe more than the biblical writers intended for us to do so for example in the scriptures fire fire is always used particularly all through the old testament and in in uh, jesus day and time to as an allusion to god's judgment and god's uh, refining work that he wants to do, of testing a person's work and their life. So it's something that is all-consuming. It's something that is, uh, the scriptures say, your works will be tested as in fire. And if, you've, if it's gold or your, the things that you've done are, are of substance to be able to substantiate or stand up through God's careful and evaluation of your life, then they've been tested by fire, the scriptures say. And so sometimes we've taken things like fire and made it into this sort of picturesque kind of thing. And in our modern visual culture and the influence of Dante, sometimes we've made these things and elevated them above and beyond what the scriptural intention would be for us. Uh, Tim Keller reminds us, looking at all of the, the um, 
New Testament language of hell, of Gehenna, of all the words that Jesus would use to describe it. He says, you know, listen, all of the biblical language around hell, it's elusive, meaning they're alluding to, to experiential realities, metaphorical, and it's partial. All that we can say about hell through the biblical language is that it's just unspeakably bad. Literally, it's such a horrible state of existence that it's only alluded to and we're pleaded with uh, to avoid being in a place where we would experience uh, the experience of it. Why? Why is hell so bad? Well, we see that Jesus is clear and from other texts in the New Testament that hell is bad because hell is punishment. Matthew 25, 46, go away into eternal punishment. In Matthew 23, verse 33, uh, Jesus is saying to those who are, consider themselves righteous and self-righteous, he said, how in the world do you think you are going to avoid the judgment and punishment of hell? In the parable prior to this, uh, the unfaithful servant is punished for their actions. And in this description in Matthew 25 of the final judgment, it's described as punishment for those who knew what they were to do but who willfully refused it. And so Jesus is, is painting a picture for us and the New Testament's painting a picture for us just like in a, a parent would, helping us understand that our choices have very real consequences. That in order to uh, be aware of the consequences of our choices, the punishment for those choices and the logical extent of those choices needs to be clearly enough articulated that we can understand and make a different choice. Like we read in Deuteronomy earlier this morning, God lays out the consequences of our choices and God implores us and says, choose life, make the right choice. But he also allows us to choose the alternative. And God's judgment then is connected to our actions and my actions. In the Old Testament, in a book of Daniel, describing the end of things, uh, Daniel chapter 12, um, Jesus says to Daniel, some will rise at the final judgment to everlasting life and some will rise to shame and to everlasting disgrace. Because their actions in their life have borne that kind of fruit that you would be ashamed forever to stand in the presence of a holy God and be disgraced because of your choices. And so Jesus is is driving at the question of fruit. What kind of fruit is my life bearing? The actions of a person's life will invite judgment, will invite divine assessment And what will be found in that divine assessment? Will my actions merit shame and everlasting disgrace or will my actions merit something different? And here's where I get concerned about those who want to erase or minimize hell because in a very real way, if everyone goes to this euphemistically better place when they die, there are no consequences for my action here and now. 
This is a, a view that has historically been known as universalism, and it's rooted in the notion that God's judgments are designed to move us to a place of repentance, and so therefore, uh, people that would hold that up would say, well, maybe maybe that everyone would have the opportunity. Like if it says God is not willing that any should perish, maybe in the end God doesn't get what God, well, how could God not get what God wants? And wouldn't God want everyone to come to repentance? And so maybe people that are universalists will speculate, maybe after death we have other chances, second, third, 15th, 15 millionth opportunity to recognize the foolishness of our actions and choose good and to choose God. But to me, that begs the question of justice. One of my favorite uh, theological writers is a man by the name of Miroslav Volf. And in his book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace, which has been called one of the most influential works in the 20th century, uh, Volf grew up in the former Yugoslavia uh, and he witnessed just unspeakable atrocities and genocide and ethnic tensions and civil war that tore apart his country and people in his family and friends and neighbors. And in his book, he writes about this notion of our actions having consequences. And he says, listen, if God were not angry at injustice, God would not be worthy of our worship. Because God has to respond to that injustice in some way. If the practice of Christian nonviolence requires the belief that God will one day judge. If you disagree, I suggest imagining that you are in a war zone. And among your listeners are people whose cities and villages who have been plundered and then burned and whose daughters and sisters who have been raped, whose fathers and brothers who have had their throats cut. Imagine telling them that they should not punish their enemies because God does not judge or punish. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban existence to insist that an all-loving God does not judge or punish. Just recently, in the past couple of months in Tanzania, there have been a, a wave of new attacks and mutilations and the killings of children with albinism. One little girl was just three years old. When we look at our world as human beings, the team that was in Guatemala just a couple of weeks ago, just the systemic pervasiveness of injustice that's perpetuated against the poor. You think about history and the horrible things done by leaders throughout history. Things that cry out for justice, maybe things you've experienced in your own personal life. And so when Jesus brings up the topic of hell, one of the things that he's doing is he's reminding us of the reality that even if a person escapes judgment in this life, that there is a just and righteous God who does not let the guilty go unpunished. There is coming a day when you and I and every person will answer for our actions. And Jesus says this is, the, this is the picture of this dividing that's happening in Matthew 25, that there will be those who go away to eternal punishment and there will those who go away, the righteous will go away to life eternal. But the judge of all things is the one who gets to make that call, who is just and fair, who will not let the righteous go unrewarded or the guilty go unpunished. 
And so that's where we move into the place of the discussions on hell are really discussions about the character of God and how he works in, in our world. And the other notion that we see in this discussion that's used is that the word eternal is attached to those things. And so Matthew 25 Verse 46 says uh, that hell is eternal. In another biblical text like 2 Thessalonians 1, we read that they will be punished with eternal destruction forever, separated from the Lord and his glorious power, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. But the challenge is that for us, as human beings, in, in finite time and space, we, we lack reference points to process adequately what this means, though a ton of ink has been spilt on attempting to. And this, I think, is where a lot of of discussion is happening these days around the topic of hell, is just trying to wrestle with, well, what would it mean for hell to be eternal? And I think all we can say about it is there's just lots of questions about that still. You know, is, is hell a place of annihilationism where uh, a person's personhood ceases to exist? Are they annihilated all altogether? Are they conscious? Are people conscious? Do they understand and know what's happening in hell? And I think here, you know, it's great to talk and it's great to think and it's great to reflect, but I think we, we have to be careful about endless philosophical speculations. I'm not suggesting in any way we don't think deeply or carefully about it. I'm just inviting us to consider what it is that we can know, what we know and what we can know. Jesus himself, the only person in all of human history who had access to all of the information about the topic of hell, chose for whatever reason to give us what's recorded to us in the biblical witness and not much more. And so our minds can run to places of speculation and philosophy and set up all kinds of elaborate systems, but I want to caution us to stick with what we know and why it was revealed to us instead of getting looped into endless arguments about stuff. So let's move in that direction. The fifth thing that Jesus says about hell and that we know is that hell is separation from God. These will go away, Jesus says, into hell, which in other uh, passages is described for us just in complete and utter contrast to God who is love, who is light, who is the source of truth and justice and all of the uh, creativity and and all of the, the things that are good and right and lovely. Hell is described... When the, um, in the previous parable that Jesus is telling, he just describes it as outer darkness in Jude chapter seven as well. And here again, we're back at the purpose of using metaphors. Darkness is a way biblically of describing what happens to us when we, when we lose or when we are cast away from or when we are removed from the presence of God. Isolation, disintegration, where we endlessly and horrifically and literally fall apart. Keller again puts it this way, and he says, in the teachings of Jesus, the ultimate condemnation, the worst thing you could hear from the mouth of God ever for any person who has ever lived 
is depart from me. It's remarkable that that is the pinnacle of judgment. To simply be away from God is the worst thing that could happen to us? Well, why? Well, because as human beings, we've been created to walk in God's immediate presence. And the Bible says that sin excludes us from the face of God. Literally, all of the life, all of the joy, all of the strength and meaning that we've looked for and longed for in our lives are found in his face, the psalmist says, in his favor, in his, in his presence, fellowship and pleasure. And when you take all of that away, that is hell. Early Anabaptists, who were not super fond of writing things down because they were a group of persecuted and scattered individuals, wrestled with this and tried to figure out what they were talking about when the scriptures talked about hell. And a gentleman uh, by the name of Cornelius Rees in 1766 came to pen what would be an early Anabaptist confession, a Mennonite confession, and he said, this condition, hell, will consist in a total absence of God, of all that is good, of all comfort, and all salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but when we talk about things like this, uh, the most frequent objection that I get when I'm talking to people about Christianity is, well, how in the world could a loving God send people to hell? Maybe you've heard this objection or this question. And so I want to walk you through maybe a, a way to have that conversation with people You've likely heard this objection, and the place that I'll often go in conversation with people around here is uh, to wrestle with what Jesus teaches in Matthew 25, and how whenever Jesus is talking about hell, it's intimately connected with the here and now. Matthew 25, Jesus is responding to how people treated those around them how they treated and received and responded both those who were his uh, witnesses and also the poor and those on the margins. In his critique of religious people in Matthew 23, Jesus wants to know how in the world they would figure by their outward actions that they would escape the judgment and the fires of hell when their inner lives were completely polluted with putrid thoughts and motives. In the parable of Lazarus that Jesus tells, in the book of Luke, and the rich man. Jesus makes some very interesting observations. He notes that, that the rich man knew Lazarus by name. And so the rich man, Lazarus was not some faceless individual who sat by the rich man's gate as the rich man came and went in and out. The rich man knew Lazarus, knew of his condition, and chose to do nothing whatsoever about it. In his lifetime, he had choices to make to help him, but he chose a different path. And so the question in itself actually is worth examining and questioning the question. The question, why would God send people to hell, is in, on the face of it a bit misleading because Scripture sees hell as something that is self-chosen. Hell appears 
as God's response to and a gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or to be without God forever worshiping themselves, says theologian J.I. Packer. See, when Jesus talks about hell, what he's talking about is the implications of our lives. In a very real way, he's reminding us that our choices have very real and ultimately eternal consequences. So it might be fair to say God doesn't send people to hell. Hell is our refusal to be reconciled to God. And here we need to pair this truth with the reality that we talked about last weekend, the reality that none of us will choose our way to heaven based on good works, but ultimately our works will be judged. Our choices will be laid bare. The motives of our hearts will be laid bare and tested and sifted. And in the end of all things, God will give us what we ultimately most desire. C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about it. I highly recommend it. It's called The Great Divorce. And he writes about, uh, in, a, in a storied format, about the residents of hell who take a bus trip to heaven. And they're given the choice to stay. But one by one, they decline on various grounds. And Lewis goes over the conversation again and again, and he he makes the point that it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, says Lewis, there's something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Because in the end, there's only two kinds of people. There's those who say to God, your will be done, and those who say, and to whom God says, your will be done. Romans chapter 1 talks about God giving us over to the desires of our hearts. The psalmist often uses that language of turning us over to the things which we most deeply desire. And some of us, deep in our beings, are still screaming at God, I am the captain of of my fate, I am the master of my soul. And so ultimately, one day, God will say to those who live like that, fine, I respect your choice. From here on out, you will get what you have most wanted, either to be your own savior and master or to have me as your savior and master. So in some ways, hell is an extension of a chosen path leading from right here and right now on into eternity. And to me, more than any image, metaphor, you know, anything, that's what makes hell scary. And that's what Lewis is driving at in this quote. Just before that, he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize yourself and just wish that you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. And then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, 
going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. In some ways, theologically speaking, you could say hell is the law of natural consequences and it's something that each of us are headed for unless we choose wisely. Many classical writers will talk about hell as being a prison uh, whose doors are locked from the inside by us and then God simply becomes a respecter of the choice that we have made. And to me, that is more sobering than any sermon that any hellfire and brimstone preacher could ever work up. And it's also why focusing on the metaphors is so distracting and, and harmful because it obscures the real issue and the real issue that Jesus drives at every time the conversation of judgment comes up is how then now shall I live my life? Whenever the Bible talks of eternity, it does sort of call stark attention to the, the reality of our lives today and what we choose today and the consequences of it. Tony Campolo asks the question in this way, you know, what is the organizing principle of my life? What is my life organized around? If my life is organized around things that won't be in heaven, things like greed, sexual exploitation, self-centeredness, gluttony, argumentativeness, deception, it's logical that you won't even want to be in heaven because you're organized around foundationally things that do not share space with a God who is holy and loving and just. Campolo kind of speculates and thinks even beyond that. It's like, I wonder if there's even like a theology club in hell where people just sit around and argue all day because in heaven it says, oh, we will know everything. And there's some people whose the organizing principle of their lives is they have to be right about everything. And once it's all known, they're like, I don't want to go there where it's fully known. Who knows? But ultimately, the question is John 5.29 reminds us that our present as well as our eternity is rooted in our actions not just our good intentions. And so Jesus' warning about hell is designed to remind us that we have a choice. In fact, choices that are still ours to make. And we stand now and each day and each moment in a very real way at a crossroads where two roads diverge in front of us in the yellow wood to steal from Robert Frost. And the question that Jesus wants us to ask is what road am I walking down currently? And where does that road lead? In a very day-to-day, moment-by-moment, and also in an ultimate sense. Today, your road might have be a pathway that is littered with grumbling and self-centeredness. Tomorrow, that might grow into bitterness and hardness of heart. But while you're still here, you and I still have a choice to make about how we orient our lives toward or away from God to answer the question who ultimately is the master of your fate ultimately the captain of your soul 
And so that's why here at Jericho Ridge, when we ask the question of people, you know, is, it, is there something that you would want to respond to God about that, that is ordered around this very question? That we want to present all of the time, each of us, with an opportunity to remind ourselves about the choices that we're making. How am I living my life today? Because today there's still time to change my path. And so in some senses, discussions of hell are not, should not be used to frighten people into doing something. They're more like smelling salts to try and kind of wake us up to realities around us and questions of discipleship. Am I living in such a way that, that I'm still humbly receptive to the whispers of God's spirit and the mercy and grace that he offers? Has my heart begun to grow whole, cold and hard in any places? How am I living my life today? And what choices do I need to make as a result of that? I'm gonna ask Jared if he would come and he's just gonna play instrumentally that song that we sang uh, earlier today. And this sometimes will have a more corporate response. I think it would be more appropriate today to have much more of a personal response and just give you a little bit of time and each one of us time to just spend the time asking God about the condition of our souls. Anything that's been percolating in your life this week or today, right now, that, that you want to dialogue with God about, just ask God, God, is there anything that you need to speak to me about in my life, in my heart today? Anything about my choices that need attention by your Holy Spirit? And if God speaks to you about something, then act on it in some way. It might mean that you need to actually go to someone else and say, you know, God just brought a discussion that we had in an argument that we had in the past to my mind and I just need to confess it to you and I just need to say that was wrong and I was wrong and arrogant and stupid and would you forgive me about that? It may be that today here for you as we've talked about these things you've thought I have no certainty where that path will lead me to in eternity and maybe you need to talk to somebody about that and you need to invite God to be the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. And you would do that simply in prayer and just saying, God, I choose today to follow you. I choose to reorient my life based on the work of Jesus and the cross and his grace and mercy that poured out for me. I choose to receive that as sufficient in every way to be in relationship with you. Maybe you've been around religion and church for a long time. You're like, hey, I heard all of this stuff before. But maybe you've made some active choices in your life that are pointing you away from things that you know that God has spoken to you about. And you're just saying, you're just brushing it off and saying, I don't, I know God says that, but I don't really care about that. I'm just gonna do this anyways. It's, it's not a big deal. After all, you know, my eternal soul is secure, so whatever. Friend, this discussion is, again, calling us to a place of reminder and saying that type of attitude is so dangerous because it begins to reorient our heart and our life around different principles. And so you may just need to say to God today, God, I am sorry. I just need to repent for those decisions 
and just thinking, oh, I'll just make it all right in the end. Who cares? My, my, you know, the eternity of my soul is secure. Be cautious, friend, about the direction of your soul. So I'm just going to give us some time this morning just to let God do some of that work by his Holy Spirit. If you feel prompted in any way and need to respond, um, go ahead and do that. And ask if the prayer teams would be available at the side again. And you know, if somebody goes up for prayer, in no way should you think to yourself, oh, they must be praying about some deep, dark stuff in their life. You know, you just need to process something with somebody and talk to people about what's going on in their heart. But if you want to do that individually as well, I encourage you to do that. So Jared will just continue to play and then in a few minutes I'll come up and close us in prayer. So just use this time as a gift and an opportunity to just say, God, what is the status? What is the condition of my soul?